Hello, you're listening to The Future of Media Explained with me, Press Gazette editor Dominic Ponsford, and this week we're looking at misinformation and the US midterms. So, joining me this week is Press Gazette reporter Bron Mayer. Hi, Bron. Hi, Dom. How's it going? It's going well, and I'm I'm overjoyed because this week's podcast is presented in association with Reuters. So that's quite a good brand, isn't it, to have sponsoring us? Pleased about that. Because it's Reuters, we're taking a closer look at the US midterms and misinformation. So two topics that they're particularly strong on. And Bron, you've been speaking to Scott Malone, who's the Reuters political editor. Stephanie Burnett, who's their digital verification editor, and Rob Shack, who is Director of Emerging Products and Special Events. But before we get into your your interviews, set the scene for me. Reuters, I'm sure most people have heard of Reuters, but what's Reuters? Reuters is generally best known as a wire agency. And among other things, they've got a whole setup right now following the US midterms. And they also, in early 2020, a bit before the pandemic, they launched a digital verification kind of fact-checking team, which obviously came into its own in the subsequent months. And we spoke to both, as well as Rob Shack, who's on the commercial side, about what they've been doing to cover the US midterms and how misinformation and fact-checking has played into that and why they got into fact-checking in the first place and what drove that as a commercial decision. Brilliant. Sidebar. Listeners are probably thinking, you sound a bit American, don't you? I will have you know, Don, that I am from the London borough of Hounslow, and we, in fact, all sound like that over here. (laughs) No, I went to university in the US, so I, I did four years for my undergrad, and despite being back for six, seven years by now, the twang never goes. I would argue that my pronunciation, my T's are still sharp pointed things, but something about the ineffable twang, the bed of my voice remains American. Yeah, good. It's perfect for this podcast, isn't it? And the uh, so y- y- the midterms, just give us the quick summary. It's, get, it's hotting up, isn't it, as a story, but what, what's going to be happening? It is indeed. So in short, the way that the US House of Representatives works Everyone in that house is up for election every two years. So that's always a toss-up. That means every time there's a big presidential election, those seats are always up for grabs. But then also in between the elections, the big generals, they also have these midterms. That often results in the house swinging the opposite direction. So right now, the Democrats have a very thin hold on it. And it looks like it might be going the opposite way, which will make it much harder for the Biden administration to pass legislation. It's already pretty difficult. The Senate is a bit more of a toss up, not really clear where that's going. Only about a third of the seats in that house are up for grabs. But then there's also a bunch of state level elections, which, for example, are for governor roles in some cases. And as we will end up talking about, there are some Secretary of State roles going. We will touch on what that actually means. But essentially, it's going to be a tight election. So the last time we got into the US elections in a big way on Press Gazette was just on the eve of the last presidential election when we interviewed Stephen J. Adler, the Reuters editor-in-chief, who said at the time, this was a few days before the election, they were handing out gas masks and helmets to reporters because the atmosphere was so heated and 
the kind of the political climate it becomes so polarized how's that sort of polarization looking now for our colleagues in the US yeah you raise an interesting point there because so many people working at major news outlets be that New York Times CNN very much they found themselves losing a lot of trust in the well before the election but also since it because they're seen in some quarters as you know peddlers of a false election result I asked Reuters how come you yourselves haven't really been tarnished by that same brush so let's hear from the panel We'll hear first from Scott Malone, Reuters' politics editor, then director of emerging products and special events, Rob Shack, and from Stephanie Burnett, the Wire Agency's digital verification editor. We take great care to be neutral and fact-based in our coverage. It's, it's our identity. It's our history. It's what we've always done. And I realize I should probably have pulled you into this earlier, Rob. With regards to the everydays, can you speak at all to what at a commercial level of Reuters's midterm coverage looks like and what it's involving? Yeah, sure. And I think to add on to the last question, and the reason why there's a commercial person here with two journalists is because we have these bylaws called, we call the trust principles, which are about separating our business from our editorial, right? So the great work that Scott and Stephanie did that have become Reuters' own reporting gets supplemented for our news agency customers with uh, the raw data that's collected on election night, right? So that raw data that comes in, the vote counts, the exit polls that are executed by the, the U.S. national election pool, which is made up of the major networks, that data, Reuters isn't responsible for syndicating, right? So not only do we, do we use that data ourselves, and does it help Scott and Stephanie and everyone else at Reuters be sure that our reporting is in line with, or points out how it's not in line with the actual real results, we're able to syndicate that content as well to our customers, along with their reporting, to help everyone have access to true, fair, unbiased results and news as everyone's seeing it on TV that night in real time. Mm. And I know this uh, this one's open to everyone. I know that, that stuff around exit polls and predicting states can get quite technical and in the past has led to some controversial <laughs> calls. Has there been Have there been technical developments around that recently? I'm a very much a lay person when it comes to these. I think maybe I, I'm probably closest to this as well because I'm connected to the, the national election pool actually does the race calls for us on election night. And they have a secret sauce, as does every network. I mean, every network has their own quote-unquote decision desk, right, that takes the combination of results coming in with the actual exit polling, opinion polling that happens on election day or, or before, puts that together with their secret calculations. And that's how each network decides when to quote-unquote call an election. The national election pool itself, and, it, and separate from the networks that are made up of it, has its own, has its own set of calculations. And of course... When one calls, there's a lot of pressure for everyone else to call and a lot of pressure on <clears throat> the good people on the decision desk to make sure they stick to their guns and stick to their calculations they set out ahead of time. So it becomes more of a mathematical decision than an emotional decision to make a race call. Thankfully for Reuters, we're not involved in doing that directly ourselves. We have in the past. It's very hard, very hard to do. Mm. If I move on to Stephanie for a moment, this is the third House of Representatives election cycle since the 2016 race, not including the 2016 race itself. And since then, mis- and disinformation has very much been at the heart of the news agenda, especially around elections. Could you speak at all about how mis- and disinformation has changed over that time? And for any listeners who aren't already familiar, could you explain what exactly we mean by those terms? 
Yeah, so mis- and disinformation, these are words that have entered our everyday language since the 2016 elections, right? So it was mainly academics who described things as mis- and disinformation, which is essentially dealing with fake news. Misinformation is the umbrella term for dealing with false content, whereas disinformation suggests that there's the intent to harm. And this can potentially have real-world consequences if it deals into where propaganda and getting certain people to get on board with a certain agenda, and you may be none the wiser. So those are what the main two terms are. What we're seeing now is there are similarities from 2016. There's a sense of, quote unquote, protecting traditional family values. And this is particularly with regard to LGBT groups or when it comes to abortion in particular. It's a very hot topic in the United States. One particular example that we see frequently is when it comes to drag queens who have been performing at certain events for pride rallies. What we had, this is just one instance, but it happens quite often, is that these groups will be targeted. And in this instance in Idaho, for example, there was a video of a drag queen performing and the video went online But what it was edited to show was that a certain area was pixelated to suggest that they had exposed certain regions in front of children when that wasn't the case at all. The police said they found no evidence of this. The prosecution said they found no evidence of this. Yet this narrative persists consistently. And the other thing I would say, and it touches on the whole Pizzagate narrative and baseless claims, pedophile rings, but what is called adrenochrome when it comes to, it's a conspiracy theory that's around blood harvesting. And this is a narrative that consistently crops up when it comes to the labels of global, quote unquote, global elite, liberal elite, etc. And this is part of a narrative to sow distrust in certain institutions. And this is also a narrative that I feel it's really important to underscore, which is it's cyclical. We've seen this sort of narrative not only centuries ago. I mean, this goes into the medieval ages where these are narratives that have, these are clearly anti-Semitic. This idea that a certain group that is seen as an other is harvesting or kidnapping certain, kidnapping their children. And this narrative is used to illustrate certain things. Now, this may seem really far-fetched, right? What I think would be really interesting to see is with this narrative uh, that's also happened around this so-called stop the steal, election denialism, how the narrative that has some anti-Semitic tropes potentially merge and meet come election time, because while it may seem far-fetched, just adrenochrome and the blood harvesting, and yes, it's, it is conspiracy, what we have seen recently, this month with the mainstream artists using anti-Semitic tropes to describe a certain group. And so now this is out in the mainstream, and it's going to be really interesting to see how this plays out, not only in the lead up to the midterms, but potentially perhaps even more profoundly so after it. Just for the benefit of listeners, I assume you're referencing Kanye West there. The artist formerly known as. Sorry, you're right. Yes. Yay. Nowadays. That actually, that that provides a wonderful segue because uh, Scott, I wanted to open that up to you and say, obviously on the topic of misinformation, stop the steal and kind of election denialism was suddenly a huge political theme going out of 2020. Do you get the feeling that it's still a major thing on the campaign trail now? Is it still feeding into the 2022 elections? Oh, oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Very clearly, the former president, Trump, he's out all the time repeating these false claims, which have been resoundingly rejected by courts, by state reviews, 
by his own former attorney general, Bill Barr. But nonetheless, all of our polling shows that this is something that's really gained traction. And it's an area that's actually changed some of the focus of election coverage. In years past, we really wouldn't would have given very little coverage to, to Secretary of State races. They tended to be quite staid. People often stayed in those jobs for a really long time. They were very technocratic, just election management jobs. And this year, we see candidates in Arizona and Michigan and Nevada who are proponents of Trump's false claims of widespread election fraud, who are now running for Secretary of State roles. We also know that in, in Pennsylvania, the Republican candidate for Governor Doug Mastriano, who, if elected, would have the power to, to appoint the next Secretary of State, has also embraced these rules. So it's something that's it's really taking hold. And there are people on the ballot in 2022 who, if they do succeed and are elected, will have a real power to, to influence the uh, the presidential election in 2024. Mm-hmm. One other thing I want to add there is that I get a chance to talk to our international news publishing customers who in- increasingly are asking me about Secretary of State races, which is very unusual in a midterm election to have very large news publishers outside the U.S. with an inch with a domestic interest, completely, somebody's completely different, to be following our Secretary of State races because they really, all, all eyes are on 2024 and whether or not we're going to have, really frankly, whether Trump will run again. Could you give a little bit of a sense of what exactly the significance of a Secretary of State role is? It? Is this the kind of person who's in charge of voter rolls and that kind of stuff? Exactly. It varies. It varies from state to state. But in most states, the Secretary of State is the top election official. So they both oversee administration of elections and at times play a role in in certifying the election results and would have the power to be involved in any challenges or reviews of of election results. Yeah. It's really unusual for them to be on the international radar, (laughs) right? Yeah. Yeah. Am I correct in thinking, I seem to recall, was it Brian Kemp was against Stacey Abrams in Georgia and he was maybe Secretary of State there? Yeah, and that became a whole thing, right? <laughs> I believe you. I believe you. You're correct about that. And and Abrams back in in 2018 had some concerns about Kemp overseeing an election that he was also running in. This obviously predated Trump's claims post 2020, mm-hmm. but that was a, an election that that Abrams did raise some concerns about about how it was run. Mm-hmm. More broadly, if we move a little bit beyond election denialism, are there any kinds of any trends and misinformation that are worrying any of you, really? When it comes to trends, and what we're seeing is a lot of it, just to repeat Scott's point, I mean, it is a lot about election denialism, but merged with a call to action. So we're seeing that when it comes to trends around pushing a certain narrative. So for example, another conspiracy narrative is around the Great Reset and wanting to stop that. And if we don't know what the Great Reset is, it's an initiative that started by the World Economic Forum, but it has been taken over to have this conspiracy around that it's about the global elite wanting to bring forward social change and dismantle capitalism. There's been no evidence of this whatsoever, I want to be clear, but this is a part of a frequent thing that we consistently see when it comes to certain narratives that that are trending, at least in the sphere that we have with monitoring misinformation. We just want to say that it's just so important that we have writers and fact checkers in general have our fingers on the pulse to see how the frequent picks up and potentially flag to certain partners that misinformation is going on. So when it comes to the election denialism, it comes to this idea of the Great Reset, 
which shows distrust in certain institutions and public health systems. But also in Spanish, I think it's also important to talk about the Latino community. There's a lot of misinformation within Spanish-speaking communities. And that goes back to what I was saying before with these traditional values and how that's interpreted among different groups. I wanted to move on to another misinfo-related topic. So before working at Press Gazette, I used to be a journalist at another anti-misinformation initiative called NewsGuard. And although I since left the fact-checking space, one of the things that's been really interesting to watch is that the sector has changed financially. So my old employer is now, it's gone from operating at a loss to now breaking even. And I was just speaking to Full Fact recently, and they've got their biggest ever donor pile coming in. And I'm really interested because how long has Reuters been running its fact-check program, do you know? Since 2020. Okay, so it's pretty new. And that kind of reflects that, like, you know, this mm-hmm. is a big news organization investing in in a fact-checking program. Has something changed around maybe the business case for doing for investing in fact-checking? While it's discouraging that there's a lot of myths and disinformation running rampant, what is encouraging is that there's now a lot of demand for action. And so you have different sectors who are now interested in this, not just news organizations wanting to partner with other news organizations to make sure certain facts are right and narratives. There's also tech companies that want help with identifying what is misinformation. So there are major tech companies that they rarely want to be seen as the arbiter of truth, right? So they will pass that that back off to another organization. So there's potential there. And then also, I would say within public institutions, a desire and a demand for intelligence on these things. And sometimes that manifests in certain ways when it comes to reputational risks. So it's not just misinformation dealing with politics. It's also misinformation that can impact anyone and any sector. And I would say all of this combined is why there's now perhaps there's more of a willingness to step forward and take this on. And also it's just, it's one of the biggest stories of our time right now with mis and disinformation. So this is another reason why. And I have one final question, which is I think applicable to you both, because essentially what I want to ask is, what can journalists and publishers who might be listening right now Uh, What can they do to suss out or at least avoid repeating false information? And I think this is relevant to you both because, A, one of you is a fact checker, but one of you also deals with politicians who might not be making true claims on the campaign trail. I would say one of the big things is to... Well, it's good to monitor misinformation. I think it's make sure you take care with that balance of identifying at what point are you amplifying niche voices to the wider audience and what kind of risks does that pose, especially if it's harmful content. And another thing I would say is hold the line. When we're getting requests for comment from people behind certain narratives, especially when it comes to scientific studies, for example, that deal with public health, there will be a lot of wishy-washy statements. And yes, traditionally, maybe some outlets would just put that in. That's a right to response. We're going to throw that whole chunk in there. But you're still amplifying misinformation. So I would say don't allow for room for obfuscation and hold people to account with certain misinformation that's going around. Yeah. And, 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 you know, the, the, the same standard applies when it's not niche voices. We've started to see people who hold and have held prominent offices say things which we know not to be true and which in some cases there's evidence that they know not to be true. And one of the things that we need to do when that happens is one, it's a discussion of do we need to report this at all? If we do, then we need to point out that it isn't true and what evidence that we have to show that it isn't true. It all comes back to evidence and, and facts. 
And this isn't the only election writers cover us. We cover many elections around the world. We can bring in the actual government data and or the actual official source data into the mix is really important as well. So we have, we spend a lot of extra time trying to make sure that we can present not just our reporting, but the actual raw data that goes with it whenever we can to show our work. Exactly. And just to buttress what Rob's saying, and these days, even with the original data, where is it coming from and who's funding it? Getting more details around how do we come across it and why is this data there to begin with? And does it, is it in line or in, intended to suit a certain narrative? Well, there you go, everybody. Some uh, tips to take home. Scott Malone, Stephanie Burnett, and Rob Shack. thank you so much for helping us out here. Thanks for that, Bron. That was, that was great to hear from Scott, Stephanie, and Rob at Reuters. Lots to digest there and think about as we haven't got elections in the UK probably for a couple of years yet, have we? Unless the turkeys do vote for Christmas, but we don't think they will. So what do you think are the things that journalists and editors in the UK, where most of our listeners are, can take home from that and bring into our own reporting. I guess the big takeaways at the end of that conversation were, especially from Stephanie saying, be careful about anything that niche voices might be saying. We are granted in a man bites dog profession, but I suppose if the claims, while newsworthy, are still coming from a super niche source, maybe not worth amplifying them. And from a similar kind of position with what Scott was saying, yes, maybe someone important, maybe, I don't know, the President of the United States or a former President of the United States might be making some rather large claims. But I suppose it's worth our asking, are those claims always worth repeating? Because to some extent, when you even repeat a false claim, even if you're debunking it, you can end up lending it greater credence than it did already. As ever, a really difficult line because someone powerful saying something false is still, to some extent, a newsworthy event in and of itself. But... If we don't want uh, misinformation spreading, I guess this is a kind of difficult question that we've got to grapple constantly. Like in Tory leadership elections, when people are saying that former PMs have got more supporters than perhaps they have in reality and not sourcing it. That is very much the live area where this translates over to for us with all the, uh, the anonymous briefings and all that kind of business. Brilliant. Look, thanks for that, Bron. You've been listening to The Future of Media Explained with me, Dominic Ponsford, Press Gazette reporter, Bron Mayer, and produced, as always, by Adrian Bradley. This week's episode was presented in association with Reuters. If you like this episode, please do subscribe, leave us a nice review, and as always, you can read more about all the issues we discuss on this show on our website, pressgazette.co.uk. 